If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. You're about to hear a story of murder, greed, corruption, violence, exploitation, adultery, and treachery. All those things we know you hold near and dear to your hearts. Scott, can you refer to me as Roxy today and I'll call you Billy Flynn? I don't know. I mean, Billy is pretty sharp, but I'm kind of a Velma. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm are a, you the matron? I'm <laughs> Mama Morton. Yeah. <laughs> when you're good to mama. That's right. Yeah, that was the overture. Well, that was our version of the overture uh, vocal intro to Chicago, uh, the stage play and the movie version at the top of our show today. And we picked that for a specific reason. And we've talked about it last week and on a couple of other things. Dr. Shiloh, what are we doing for the next few episodes? Well, I'm going to have to give all of this to you because these are stories you picked. But I'm very excited to do something a little bit different, even to continue our series on vintage L.A. crimes. But we're going to be talking about some murderous ladies, some murderesses, if you will. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we're going to keep going with this series. We have covered Dorothy Purcell at the Cecil Hotel. We have covered the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. And now we're going to bring you a couple of episodes with some female perpetrators. And I, I think we're really diving back into the the times in Los Angeles and the 20s and what was going on with these women and how they were portrayed. Yeah, I, I want to give it back to you. I mean, it's certainly, or we can pass it over credit to my husband, Dan, for giving me this fantastic book called Los Angeles Murders, which was basically an anthology book of all of the major crimes that happened in the 20s through the 30s. Um, and certainly I'll, it's out of print, but you might be able to find a used copy somewhere. I'll put the info up in our show notes. It's a great read because the narration is so archaic. It is so 1940s talking about the 20s. And that's a really wonderful thing. So Dan inspired that. And then the Wineville Chicken Coop Mooters, the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders is right in this time frame, which is really kind of specific to Los Angeles. Today's story happens in 1921, literally 100 years ago. Yep. Yeah, And right at the time of ultra modernization of the West Coast of the U.S. and Southern California in, in particular. And that is setting the scene for how crime is viewed, how gender is viewed when crimes are committed, and then basically constructing a foundation for what we've been working on 
for the last few years, which is L.A. noir perspective on crime. Right. So, you know, the the story that you chose for today is a great one. Um, And when we talk about how these crimes were glamorized when it came to women in the 20s and really... You know, probably a little bit before that, like the right at the turn of the century into the 20s, we're talking about the way, I mean, put yourself back there 100 years ago, we're talking newspapers, we're talking radio, and that's it. And they were really emphasized this difference in gender in their reporting, even when it came to crime. So I found this wonderful master's thesis from Emily Crumpton out of the Utah State University back in 2017. She, I mean, what a cool, first of all, what like the coolest thing to study. She was looking at murderous women at the time and how they were represented in the media. And I just want to read a little bit from her thesis about some of these issues where really what we start to see and what we saw with the Wineville chicken coop murders, how behavior and mental competence was linked to gender and sort of factored into the division of gender in reporting and how women were treated by the police. So uh, gotta love that EBSCO host for finding research yes. articles or Google scholar. Totally. Totally. Yeah. This is such a gem. So in her dissertation or in her thesis, she writes, about sensationalized stories of lethal ladies between 1890 and 1920 and how they shaped public perceptions of gender, crime, mental illness, and substantiated the perceived need for separate spheres, meaning men versus women. and Or a double standard, right? Right. Well, yeah, a du- <laughs> that's a great way to put it. But even how the re- we'll hear about how the reporting was even being done at the time. She says that murderous women challenged established gender norms, they did not conform to the societal expectations of their gender. Therefore, they were not considered quote unquote normal. So she talked about women like Alice Mitchell, Jane Topin, and Amy Archer Gillian, who became objects of the media. I, I love that term. Objects of the media is really like nails it. What we're well, going to be talking Yeah, today. just even just calling them an object. Exactly. Right there. Exactly. And really fed public curiosity about human behavior and just kind of took it and ran with it. So she goes on to say that as defined by medical science and society, newspapers police the boundaries of normality by sensationalizing the lives, actions, and trials of deadly damsels. I think we would be remiss to not mention, and I know you're going to go more into what LA was like at that time, but of course... Hollywood and what how Hollywood was exploding at this time. So everything can kind of seem like a movie if you sensationalize it enough or have this buffer of it being told to you in a story over the radio, which is how we got a lot of our storytelling. So I, I think that definitely led to the glamorization of it as well. I also want to talk quickly about policing back then and what what that was like. It was, again, we're comparing 100 years ago. In the history of the American criminal justice system, this period of time, like 1900s to even today, is what they call the the reforming the system period. So early America and the criminal justice system was pre-1815. And then you had building a criminal justice system 1815 to 1900. So you are so (laughs) smart. I would never... 
I didn't know you were going to go this direction. This is so cool. Well, I I wasn't, but then I I don't know. Maybe it's my old like criminal justice degree. This like is great. the history. I think we have to take into context like how young our country is, and even when it comes to policing and yeah. laws and and the entire system. Not that I'm going to review all of that. <laughs> we could do a, an episode on that in and of itself. But we really just started to build our, our criminal justice system in like the 75-year period leading up to 1900s. And then by 1900, the society was really seeing the deficiencies in policing and even in the prisons. Like this is times when a lot of our prisons were being built, our prison system, and calling for reformation. So... The two main reforms that were called for at the time um, were professionalism. So, again, society was noticing and not standing for the inefficient, disorganized, and corrupt law enforcement. They were not going to tolerate it. And really, the key to that reform was eliminating the influence of politics from police administration because those were so interwoven. And here we are 100 years later dealing with, a, with dealing with another version of that, right? In my head, I was like, history repeats itself. Yeah. Or has it even, it's just still going, I think. And then the second sort of reform phase was really the nationalization of crime control. So we saw the birth of the FBI in 1908, and they really helped lead the way in developing police practices as a science, as a social science, and establishing new standards of professionalism and standards of how policing should be done and training and all of that good stuff that is hugely regulated today. But I, I think if we kind of narrow, go back down and narrowly look at, at local law enforcement in the 20s, I mean, it's largely responsive, right? There's not a lot of proactive policing being done there is not really an emphasis on building community relationships as a crime reduction technique. It's more of like, okay, you come into a police station, report your crime, give me just the facts, ma'am, and I'll go out and investigate. And obviously, they didn't have the technology that we have now 100 years later, which I would like to go into later on. I think it's really interesting just to hear like what forensic science was like back then, because it was actually kind of being born around this time. But it was still in its its infancy. And clearly, you know, with America being young, there was a lot of racism for against various immigrant groups that unfortunately drove leads in investigations and police response, as well as really dividing pockets of community. And Los Angeles was such a diverse community and city even early on that that was quite prevalent as well. So giving you some background to that, but I know you're going to tell us about more about L.A. specific. Well, just to to sort of circle back to what you were just saying, a couple of things I wanted to throw up, which I'm sure our listeners are fascinated by. There's the second season of The Alienist, which is a great show uh, on, oh God, I don't even know where it's streaming. TNT is where it was. I'm not sure. TNT maybe. I think it's a really great show because it really, it's about 20 years earlier, but it's talking on the East Coast about the infancy of fingerprinting and forensics and how to look at things properly, but well within the context of what you were talking about, marginalized communities, and how white marginalized communities certainly had it completely different from people of color at the time. They had many challenges, 
but not sort of the long-term chronic challenges, whereas the Irish were able, they were marginalized very, very heavily, but then were able to integrate and they became law enforcement. Right. And then the Italians came and, but it was just like, there were waves of marginalization within the U.S. that always just wanted to focus on one part of the population as the other. And that got in the way of police work. And then for a funny version of it, if you're a fan of John Mulaney, the stand-up comic and writer for SNL, genius, genius writer, he has the whole thing about the glamorization of crime in the 20s and 30s where, you know, he says criminals dressed up for their crimes. They wore like really nice suits and they they shot their initials into the wall with bullets. Yeah, they did. <laughs> and then cops would walk in and say, well, make sure everybody steps in the blood so you know where you've walked. You know, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Everything not to do. <laughs> Everything the opposite of what would be done today. But like you were saying, taking a picture of, of Los Angeles or taking the sort of a bird's eye view of Los Angeles 100 years ago in the 20s was a really fantastic time because it was this absolute boom of prosperity for the area. Um, Hollywood became equated with the U.S. film industry and the visual settings of all around Los Angeles became famous worldwide. There was a huge explosion in modernization like infrastructure, electrical power, um, transportation. In fact, in many ways, Los Angeles, because it was a, a clean slate, was able to integrate many modern conveniences in a much more easy way than long-established cities on the East Coast, which was very cool. The other side of it is, is like we had this huge urban sprawl that caused for a lot of disorganization and local governments. But we had a huge influx of citizens from all over the U.S., the Midwest, and Mexico between 1920 and 1929. The city's population doubled in size from 577,000 to over 1.2 million. Can you imagine just, just managing that? I mean, from uh, as a, a city, a civic perspective, or even policing Okay, it is crazy, but here's what's really fascinating about what you're saying is as quickly as it grew, yes, there was crime, but you know what we didn't have? We didn't have slums. It's very interesting that like maybe the economy was booming so quickly that there was work for everyone. Everyone was able to find work of some right, type. Right, that's what I'm but, thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's but your point is very well taken. Very few people lived in the hills, although now the hills and the canyons are like, you don't have a house in those areas unless it's been in your family for generations or you've got a lot of money. Um, a very, very dramatic change took place over the decade. And then in 1929, when the Great Depression hit, the city became even more of a hub of multiculturalism. And the population was a mixture of white people, Protestants, Blacks. And remember, at this time, there was much more religious distinction between people that was talked about openly. And, you know, Protestants and Catholics really kind of had it out for each other in a way that they don't now. The Our Black population was second only to uh, the largest community in Baltimore. We had Jews, Armenians, Italians, Russians, and small numbers of Asian populations, including the Chinese and Japanese. And then, you know, just more and more people from all over the Americas migrated to California, 1.2 million of which settled here in Los Angeles. And like I said, despite this, this uh, sweeping population increase, there were no slums. And the city's population went from 102,000 at the turn of the century to 577,000 in 1920, and then 1.2 in 20, 1929. So just adding even that first number into what I said earlier, you're seeing it's just 
exponentially grow, growing. So the famous um, landmark of Hollywood Boulevard was literally the main thoroughfare through Los Angeles and the Hollywood District. And then below it, a few blocks running parallel was Sunset Boulevard. And both of those became synonymous with sort of the glamour of the entertainment industry. And they're still here today and big tourist um, attractions, and they go all throughout the city. So the Hollywood Hills became a place where people either had their second home as a getaway, or they started building mansions up in the hills. And even in 1920, something very interesting happened is that Architectural Digest and other magazines from around the U.S. started describing L.A. as almost like this Shangri-La that people were just drawn to for all the possibilities and potential and the glamour, like you were saying, sort of the illusion and the magic of filmmaking. But some really kind of amazing things happened, and one of which is completely having nothing to do with this podcast, but I thought was so fascinating, is at that time was a huge surge in female landscape designers. Interesting. Like prior to that, there weren't a lot of female landscape designers. And now here with like this open possibility as this dry desert area was getting irrigated and, and planted. I just thought that was fascinating. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So, and a hundred, like, also, this this is a little bittersweet. The Hollywood Bowl opened in 1921. Oh, my hundred years ago. And it's been, what, four years, four or five years since you and yes. our husbands, we all went to the Hollywood Bowl and saw Ann and Nancy Wilson of Heart. It like, one of the most kick-ass concerts ever. The most epic night your husband brought, like, the best food. Oh. I know we were just responsible for desserts. And we just had the best meal and uh, just summer weather at the Hollywood Bowl and wonder. Oh God, that yeah, was such it was a, a great really night. different time. And the Hollywood Bowl, like, is is magic. It's also it's magic. It's amazing. Also, you talk about sort of infrastructure and organization. The Hollywood Bowl holds twenty five thousand people or something like that, and they are in and out in 45 minutes like it is just so completely organized and for the most part people are so nice it's really well it has to be organized i mean it was built in 100 years ago there is like not the parking situation that there should be but they (laughs) they've got it down i mean even if you know you're first in you're probably gonna be last out but um it it moves along very quickly anyway but But for everything that was going on there were some problems right within the city Sure. I mean, we'd be remiss if we just didn't talk quickly about how very corrupt the city was at the time. The city officials, all of the various departments, mayors, district attorneys, councilmen. I mean, they were all on the take from bootleggers because of prohibition, madams running brothels, And the gambling houses and the big thing, which was happening, I think, up and down the state, I think they had some racehorse tracks up north. I'm not sure. But even back east, what they would do is run this this gambling scheme, and it was called the horse racing wire system, essentially. (laughs) I kind of love horse racing and grew up on it, so indulge me for a second. But basically, they would use a version of a telegraph to get out the information to bookies about what horse won races 
by like using a spotter to see who what horse run the, ran the race there at the location. And then that spotter would flash a code to somebody and they would send out this information with this telegraph to the bookies who would then take bets for races who had, that had already been run and they knew the results of them and make tons of money. They would just choose which bets to take and which ones not to take if they were betting on a losing horse. And they'd be like, sure, put your money down because <laughs> they already knew. So that was one of the big frauds and um, illegal gambling systems that was going on in Los Angeles. Mayor George Cryer was notorious for protecting organized crime outfits. And it was commonly known that the LAPD vice squad at the time was also on the take. So we know what vice generally investigates. And at that time, of course, prohibition, it was it was the big thing. And there was corruption there as well. But, you know, it really was about the city, the official corruption here. Whereas I know we have talked a little bit, especially on crawl spaces, get vocal the other night about sort of comparing cities at the time. Chicago was very bloody because of the organized crime with the gangs back there. It wasn't as violent here. It was just more corruption. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's. I think it's really interesting. I don't know, because, you know, people want to compare and say, well, what was going on in different cities or which city? I think that what we were talking about was which city was the most noirish or what do you think of? Oh, right. That was and the I think of, yeah. I think of LA because of the Hollywood twist to it, but definitely there was crime and grittiness going on elsewhere in Chicago and New York. But here there was just like the opportunity and it was so young that everyone, it was just, it was literally the Wild West, including officials. Well, you think about, way. yeah, I mean, so you think about like cities that are established like New York and Chicago that already have a crime infrastructure, whereas out here it was just the Wild West. Yeah. So maybe yeah. there wasn't as much conflict because you didn't have career criminals butting up against each other the way you did in other cities. I don't know. I'm not an expert in that area, but I find it fascinating that you bring and the up gangsters, the gangsters, I mean, eventually like came out here and oh, there's yeah. a whole history of that as well. but. This the is land of we... opportunity. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so our story today, I need to talk about Madeline. Now I'm stealing that line from Death Becomes Her because that's a very <laughs> famous line by Goldie Hawn. I want to talk about Madeline Ashton. But we're not talking about Madeline Ashton today. We're talking about Madeline Connor, who became Madeline Obenchain. And certainly linking this back to our quote at the beginning of the show from the musical Chicago, this was a time where if you were an attractive woman involved in a crime, it was a whole different ball game. It was never open and shut cases. It was the newspapers, radio, all of the media that existed at the time jumped on board to make this a story because that sold papers and papers had advertisements. So. If there was a beautiful woman that could turn heads and frame a story, they were going to use it. So our characters that you need to remember for our story today are Madeline Connor, Ralph Riley Obenchain, Madeline's husband-to-be, Arthur Birch, a shy son of a minister who was just smitten with Madeline, and then Belton Kennedy, who was an insurance representative from a family of insurance salesmen, well-to-do and uh, born and lived here in Los Angeles with his family. So just remember those characters because we're going to be going through some crazy shit here real fast. Just to give you sort of a geography or a map overlay of Los Angeles, Hollywood in Los Angeles is at the north framed by the Hollywood Hills. 
And going through those hills are several several canyons that are um, today have very windy roads and are used to go from Hollywood to the San Fernando Valley, which in the 1920s, the San Fernando Valley was about as rural as you could possibly get. There wasn't a lot of reason to get over there at this time, except for maybe farms. There were maybe farms at the time. Beverly Glen was one of these canyons and a connecting road. At this time, it was a very windy, primitive uh, dirt road, barely paved in some places, and certainly no street lights. It's very narrow. Uh, Beverly Glen itself is a narrow canyon as opposed to some of the wider canyons. It goes about 12 miles from the heart of downtown LA. And to now, today, it's built up with beautiful, expensive homes dating from the early 20s that are all this Spanish adobe style. They're just beautiful, including like mega and mini mansions that are literally hanging off the side of the hill on stilts. It's kind of crazy. Today, of course, there's always architectural magazines that do pictorial displays of these beautiful homes. But in 1921, it was considered really out in the country. And really, you only thought about having a place out there if you had like a weekend cabin, which was a little bit more than a shack. You might have electricity, you might have some running water, but no guarantee. It was just sort of like the the city folk version of roughing it, that you're driving 12 miles outside where your your mansion is right? for your rustic getaway spot exactly exactly i wish i was rich enough to have a rustic yeah. getaway <laughs> <laughs> so belton kennedy as we talked about earlier he was a very slender and slightly built man about 25 years old he owned a cabin in beverly Glen, and he liked to hang out there on weekends with his friends the small cabin very rustic simply built was situated on the west side at the top of a really steep bank of the canyon. And in order to get to the cabin, you had to park your car, your jalopy, I guess as they called it, on the side of the road. And you had to walk up a flight of 16 steps, you know, just basically a simple staircase, wooden with a railing on either side. And then beyond the steps, there was a little gate at the top and a little path that led to the porch of the shack. So our story takes place in August. Therefore, That means very, very dry, 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 dry uh, weather out here, which means there's no way you're going to be seeing footprints of anything because the the ground is literally too hard to hold them. That sounds like foreshadowing. (laughs) And this this Belton Kennedy is not related to the Kennedys because this is sounding kind of Chappaquiddick at this point with a bunch of guys partying at a cabin. (laughs) Oh, it does? Uh, Yeah. Oh, it really does. I don't know if there's a connection. There might be. That would be interesting. Probably, right? With with their record. Yeah, seriously. There's a a shadow on that family. Um, So shortly after 9 p.m. on August 15th, 1921, a man named George Deering, who worked for the railroad, was driving from San Fernando all the way back down to uh, Hollywood. I think he was on his way to work. So he worked the night shift and he passed the area where Kennedy's cabin was. And he saw a frantic, crying woman screaming and crying and waving her hands in the middle of the street. So Deering drove a little bit further past so he could pull off the road safely. And then he got out of his car to see what was going on. He gets out of his car and he sees something on the ground, later identified as Kennedy, the slender young man. He was lying on the ground with a huge wound on the left side of his head, slightly behind his ear. And what Deering later described as what he thought was a puddle of blood. So a revolver lay on the steps near his right hand which led Deering to think at first that maybe this guy had killed himself. The woman identified herself as Madeline Obenchain, and she just begged him to get a doctor. But he said, look, 
we're out here in the middle of nowhere. There's no doctors. Then she said, well, look, can we get to a telephone? And he's like, there are no telephones. You're out in the middle of nowhere. So then she said, can you help me move Kennedy's body? Because she wanted to get it out of the road. But he clearly was a very conscientious man and looked and saw this guy was dead as a doornail, his own words, by the way. And he was clearly not going to move the body at all. He He's like, see- I watch CSI. I'm not touching the body. It's wrong well, with you, lady. I mean, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was also a railroad worker, which seriously, he probably saw a lot of accidents and oh, realized sure. like, this is, this is something, this guy is beyond the health of doctors. The only people that need to be called now are the cops and maybe a coroner. Yeah. So what was later found was that even though there was a gun there within reach of Kennedy's hands, the blast had been from from a shotgun to the head, and it mm-hmm. tore a two-inch hole below his right ear. And then there was a second shot that missed and splintered the trunk of a nearby tree. So, Oh, boy. Dun, dun, dun. This yeah. is what we have. Right. We've got two of the players. We've got Belton Kennedy. He's already dead. And we've got Madeline Obenshane, a beautiful, distressed young woman. So who was we have our We have our... Uh ballistics and forensic evidence and the crime scene right and right. so far nobody is tracking in the blood that's great like, oh good walking through the blood good job good job people so who was madeline madeline donna connor obenshane was born in 19 no in 1893 and on september 7th in wisconsin to what was then considered a wealthy family she went to a girl's school uh, called St. Bacchus's, and then she went on for college for one year at Northwestern University, where she was called the most beautiful co-ed at the college, which is pretty significant, you know, like it's going to play a role, like clearly we're setting the stage for this was what would have been considered a vamp at the time, exactly. like this, this woman and her behaviors, she was a vamp. While she was at college, she met several men that really would become entwined in her life of course, Kennedy being the one with the fatal consequences. Uh, one of the men she met at college, though, was Ralph Riley Obenshane, who was described later during the trial in 1921 in the newspapers as, in nice ways, he would be called the man in a million, but he'd also be called the human doormat. Oh, he was the nice guy. He was the nice guy, to an extent that's problematic, like... Some of these guys either like she really did have some some potent hoodoo or something's going on because these men are falling over this woman. Between 1921 and 1923, Madeline and her co-conspirator, Arthur Birch, I'm just giving you all the people up front. It's We already know who did it, basically. We're going to talk about why and how it happened. But between 1921 and 1923, Madeline and Birch were tried a total of five times for the murder of Kennedy, who was one of the few men that Madeline clearly could not twist around her little finger. Mm. All right. But Obenshane, look, Obenshane, he fell for very fast and hard for Madeline. He wasted no time in proposing to Madeline, even though it appeared to be on the down low for a while. While they became uh, engaged at Northwestern University in 1914, it was broken off, and then it was back on, and then it was broken off. And clearly, there was something going on where they were not supposed to, they were clearly supposed to keep it on the down low away from Kennedy's parents. So at one point at the end of that year, Madeline's father became very ill. Mr. Obenshane just dropped everything to be with her in her hour of need. When her father passed, um, Obenshane took care of the funeral and basically was just sort of acting as this ersatz son-in-law, you know, waiting on her family hand and foot. 
Now, after her father's will left her independently wealthy, Madeline said goodbye to Openshane as well to another shy admirer, Arthur Birch. For some she, reason, these she basically drops both of these guys. Yeah. It, because now she's wealthy, she can go off and do what she wants. From all the newspaper articles and from this book, that's sort of the implication is mm-hmm. that, you know, she is, and later on we talk a little bit about this, she's got funds coming in from all over the place, but she also had funds. She also spent funds. This woman was well-traveled. When she decided she wanted to take a trip, she really took a trip. So (laughs) Arthur Birch, he came from a good family. His father was a minister, but he was really never much more of holding any kind of important role in Madeline's life except for a placeholder or a substitute when Obenshane was busy, when he was too busy to spend any time with her. So he was kept in the friend zone, basically. Totes. Totes. (laughs) Poor guy. Poor (laughs) Poor Arthur. Oh, no. Well, clearly he got pulled into the friend zone with a a double barrel shotgun. Madeline still declined to marry Openshane. And instead, she goes to New York and enrolls in an acting program for two years. And then she heads off to Europe. So, look, it, it just seems like Madeline was taking the necessary time to perfect her performance techniques and skills that would really come into use uh, over the next few years. I don't know. I'm kind of like admiring her life up until this point. Hey, you know what? She's free spirit. She makes her own path. You know, just don't kill anybody while you're doing yeah. it. It was said that she could twist any man around her finger except for Belton Kennedy. And that was something that really pissed her off or caused her distress. She had power over all these people. Why couldn't she make this one work? And then after several years of Kennedy failing to follow through on any of the wedding plans, he was suddenly murdered. Was she responsible? Let's fast forward or fast backward to the crime. The police show up. They do an official investigation. They escort Madeline to the police station, and she gives an official statement. My name is Madeline Obenshain. I'm at the Alexandria Hotel. The wounded man is Belton Kennedy, my fiance. During the afternoon, we motored out to the beach. It was below El Segundo. On the return, we drove to the Brentwood Club, excuse me, to the Brentwood Club, intending to have dinner. It was closed. We then started at the hotel, but then went by the Glen to a cabin owned by Mr. Kennedy. We went up the steps. I remarked when we had gotten up there that about a year and a half ago, I had placed a penny under a rock. He said, let's find it. And he said he would go back to the motor car and get some matches. He started down the steps, and I heard the voice of a strange man, and a shot rang out. Kennedy called, good night, Madeline. I guess that's what you do when you're dying. You've been shot with a, what? Like You you bid your fiancé good night? Good night, Madeline. Okay. Okay, back. Okay, wait, I got to get back in character for Madeline. I screamed, and a second shot rang out. I ran down the steps, asked him to speak to me. I saw two roughly dressed men in the brush, and they were both wearing caps. I ran on the road and stopped the man who brought me here. So roughly dressed is how I would depict my attire throughout the pandemic. Yes. (laughs) I don't know what she means with that, but I know what that means to me, and I've been living it for several months. (laughs) Actually, all humor aside, I think that that was actually casting aspersion on like blue-collar workers. Oh, totally. I, th- yeah. I think that's what yeah. they were, she was really referring to, like rough met sort of, you know, thick work clothing, nothing that was fine that would indicate someone who was 
white collar or upper middle class. Yeah. You know? So she's trying to throw a red herring into the investigation. Also, um, Alexandria Hotel, very close to the Cecil Hotel. It is. It's still, still standing, right? Yep. Is it? Has, oh, yeah. I think it. Yeah. I think it's being renovated for something. Yeah. So in 1921, uh, another newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner, reported, quote, if Miss Obenshane's story, as she told, is not true in every part, she is the most amazing woman who ever entered the county jail. She has no fear for herself and no care about her incarceration other than that she be shown the right thing to do. Okay. Uh, hang on. I need to digest this. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> So she has this story clearly. So she gets arrested. Right. She gives this statement, which is bullshit. And then the newspaper says she's, quote, the most amazing woman who ever entered the county jail, as if you would have to give that title to somebody. And it sounds like she has she's very confident. I mean, I don't know. Are they talking about her being just a complete narcissistic psychopath if she well, is guilty and but fact. but you're right though but tone is everything right yeah. and i i'm not really sure i understand the tone of this are they being sarcastic i don't know or are they saying that like she's just this amazing woman who's so well spoken and and all she wants to do is do the right thing and she all she's asking is that she be told the right thing to do to be a good model inmate i I would let and people, if you're listening to this and you have some sort of insight in it, please talk, you know, reach out to us and let us know your thoughts. Yeah, because where it says she has no fear for herself. I mean, that could be taken. Well, you know, if she's innocent, she has nothing to fear and she's right. confident okay. or she's putting on such a performance that it's over the top. Right. So she goes on to to really maintain this this model of composure um model of composure but also just a grief-stricken woman you know that her dearly beloved fiance was just killed right in front of her eyes but it seemed like all this evidence was starting to pile up pretty rapidly and when that happened she really fell apart so by august 11th 1921 the da's office were pretty skeptical about the possibility of two rough quote-unquote men being involved in kennedy's death and now she goes on the witness stand in 1922 and she asserts she doesn't have any recollection of anything that happened the week after Kennedy's death. She just can't remember. She can't remember anything. So clearly she's having a trauma response, right? And oh, she's like dissociating. She must, have, she must have a wandering womb at this point. But yes, mean. hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, I wish we could do the camera thing that we were doing yesterday <laughs> on our meeting, the wandering womb. <laughs> Sorry, that wandering womb joke. We just kept working that the whole day. So... She doesn't remember anything. However, just like once again, going back to context, this was a huge case for the early part of the century. Millions of words were printed in newspapers over the next 16 months as she was tried twice, her alleged cohort or friend three times, all for the murder of Kennedy. The total of the trial at that time cost $38,000, which today would be $510,000. That doesn't sound like a, a lot of money, but relatively to the time, it was a great deal of money to be spent on oh, a trial. yeah. And I mean, just millions of words and covering it for 16 months. I mean, that's a long period of time to hold 
the public's attention. Oh, absolutely. But let's let me get back to this. Another paramour is in the picture. This guy that she met at Northwestern was Arthur Courtney Birch. He was a track athlete. He was the son of a retired Presbyterian minister. And he was from Evanston, Illinois, where I first lived out of college when I uh, worked in a company in Chicago. Uh, at the time of Belton's death in 21, Birch was 26 years old already, and he had not had a very successful career attempt in motion pictures in Chicago. A lot of people don't realize that there were actually, LA was not the only place that movies were being done. Chicago, New York had tons of movie production at the time for the silence. Many of these films, like the vast majority of silent films, are destroyed. We'll never know what happened to them because they just all fell apart over oh, time. Wow. But there were movie studios basically in every large city in the U.S. So he didn't do very well at it, though. Um, and he had one unsuccessful marriage behind him. He was described as an unfortunate-looking man. The papers made a great deal of him not being handsome. He was described as being short with a receding hairline, protruding ears, and very large glasses. These are not my judgments, people. I'm pulling this from the newspaper articles and research materials. And I got to say, we'll post a picture of him. Now, look, if you got your picture made back then, photographers really went out of their way to angle you and make you look nice. And there's a great photo yeah. of him. I think he may have had a little bit of a receding chin because he has his hand over his chin. Mm. But he's got a great profile. So anyway, I'm going to give Arthur Birch, the alleged murderer, <laughs> I'm going to give him a <laughs> little, I don't want him to be body shamed, even though he's been gone from us for over 100 years. Oh. Um, so in 1917, Madeline was in California. She was visiting family. And um, that's when she actually met Kennedy. So she had these two guys that she knew from college. She comes out to visit family. She meets Kennedy at sort of a, a society event, immediately like is impressed not only by his looks, because he was described as being a very good looking man, but clearly knew that he came from a successful family. You know, this, his father put together an insurance business. Kennedy and Madeline supposedly fell quickly in love, but due to Kennedy's mom and the inconsistency in decisions on Belton's part, the course of their love match was anything but smooth. So we need to talk also about something that was a phenomenon there at that time, which was the mode of communication. Yes, there were telephones, but those were rare. Uh, they were usually on party lines, so it's not like you spoke right. privately because it could be monitored by anyone. And there was always an operator that was just hanging yes. around listening to what you're saying. So how are you sending private messages? Snail by mail. mail. Yeah. Snail mail. Or by handwritten messages being delivered by someone you got to do it for you. Right. If it was local. Yeah. Exactly. If it was local. So that being said, what becomes really important at this time is to realize that, think about this, if you were going to commit a crime or you were in an illicit affair, in today's world, it's all about go onto the cloud and delete your, your iMessages account. Oh my God, delete please, people. Can I tell you how many people come into my office? Oh, how did she find out about your affair? I didn't delete my messages on my Apple Watch. Yeah. <laughs> if I hear that one more time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, like, you shouldn't be having an affair anyway. Like, well, that's, I know, that's I, but, I know. But... Like, have a little sense, you know? So, in the, but at this time, it was the same thing about letters. And it was very common in the vernacular and in the culture if that you had a breakup that you would insist to get your letters back. 
you're like, oh, okay, this relationship is over. I want those letters back. And then that would cause tension because the other person could go, oh, no, I'm not going to give them to you. I might use I might use them to blackmail you or I might use them because I need to keep them to protect my own virtue in case anyone ever accuses me. Huh. So this becomes wow. a very big deal with Madeline is that after many offs and ons again with Belton, she's just insisting, I want those letters. And if they they have the record of them, the first letters are very mild and sort of like a couple of people that are getting to know each other, but are not super into each other. Just like, okay, we're, we're starting a relationship. But over time, they get more and more fervent. And by November 27th, there's content in the letters that's very interesting. Madeline was apologizing to Belton for keeping him up late and thereby incurring his mother's displeasure, to quote the book that we pulled this from. Oh, incurring okay. his mother's displeasure. So, so that's why his mother had a problem with them getting together. Right. Well, she didn't like this. I mean, I think mom probably was enmeshed with Belton a little bit, which would have certainly explained why he was back and forth on whether he would commit to the relationship. Right. And who knows, maybe she saw through it. She's like, this, this entitled little wench, you know, who does she think she is coming to, to date my boy? So, but then again, I'd like looking at it 100 years later, I just want to make an observation too, is like, that's a kind of a manipulative thing to say in a letter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry to keep you up late reading these letters because I just, I don't want to, I don't want your your mother to be angry at me. That's... <laughs> That's a thing, right? Yeah, definitely. And I just want to get these men in her life straight. So there's Obenchain, who she had married at this point, but left, or? Yes, they're still married. They're still married. She has this boyfriend, Kennedy, out here. And then there's Arthur, the friend zone guy. Right. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. They're not married yet. Did okay. not married yet. Okay, but Oban Shane has always been saying that, like, you know, I'll I'll be your husband. I I want to okay. be there for you. Okay. And their marriage, that's really good that you brought that up, though. Their marriage comes at a time when she and Belton were off and on again. So it's almost like this impulsive reaction of like, look, I I can't be any um I can't be secure in faith of your intentions. So I'm just going to take, I'm going to take the opportunity to do this and get married to Owen Shane. Well, and the way that happens is that later that year in 1917, they both caught the Spanish flu. And during this period of separation, Belton's mom was like picking up the phone and telling Madeline, stop calling. I don't want you to talk to my son, leave him alone. And then somewhere out of the blue, the human doormat, Ralph Owen Shane shows up um, from Chicago because he's so worried about her health. So he works hard to convince her, like, look, this guy is nothing. He's not taking care of you. His mother is just terrible to you. You've got to marry. You've got to, you've got to marry me. You've got to marry me. Okay, so, so, but she, by the time Kennedy is killed, she had been married to Open Chain because she, in her official statement, she says, my name is Madeline Open Chain. I just want to get sequence of events, right? Exactly. Okay. My, my apologies. I know no, I'm no, all no. over. Like it's, it's, okay. there's so much here. So during the off and on again with Kennedy, she did again accept his proposal because they were communicating surreptitiously under his mother's nose. But Open Shane convinced her to marry him. And she said later into a newspaper that she was engaged to Belton Kennedy, but somehow 
she married Mr. Openshane on January 1st, 1919. Maybe I don't know. Her memory failed her again. Exactly. Another dissociative episode. It just so, happened. I just slipped and married him. Yeah. Openshane was completely aware of Madeline's feelings for Belton, but he thought that she would soon forget if she just married him and they got on with their lives. While this seems impulsive or senseless, I mean, in many ways, we do have to consider that she'd been kind of jacked around by Belton and his mom at this time. She was pretty weak from the flu, and here's this handsome rich guy that wants to offer his hand that doesn't really seem like much of a shabby deal. That's pretty good, right? And given the cultural understanding of the commitments of engagement at this time in history, Belton was no longer a gentleman at this point. Like he was not following through with his commitments. He would make a commitment, he'd pull it back, make a commitment, pull it back. And if he didn't have the courage to defy his parents and marry Madeline on his own, then she's just going to have to make a decision. So there's reports coming later from the testimony of a friend during trial that Belton had called Madeline three times on the night of her route to plead with her not to marry him. And Madeline, in this period of sensible thinking, hung up on him. Like she's like, no, this is what's happening. I'm getting married. I'm done with you. We're over. But the letters. Yeah. The letters. Four days later, she reaches out to Kennedy by telephone and something happens. And Oban Shane says, you know what? You do you. I love you. Do what makes you happy. I'm heading back to Chicago. So he heads back to Chicago. They're still married. But he says, if you want to, you can go through with a divorce. So she starts the process of divorce, which takes a year. And in the meantime, he's giving her a pre-alimony of $80 a month and basically just unlimited blind, uh, basically unlimited blank signed checks. And he was reported to have said, I'll give you anything you want. I just want you to be happy. So in order to wait for her divorce, she does leave the state of California and she goes back to Evanston. And by this time, Madeline is now again back in contact with Belton. So off again, on again, off again, on again. She goes back to Evanston. She's waiting for her divorce. And right as it's about to get approved, Belton is suddenly ghosting her again. And she is pissed. And she's writing letters to him saying, I've heard what your mother is saying about me around town. I'm really not happy. This, in my observation, seems to be the turning point for her. Because she was expecting that she was then going to marry Belton Kennedy, right? Right. Because before this, it was just back and forth and back and forth and like not following through. But She was still married. Right. But, you know. She's she's her concerns come first, clearly. <laughs> so she goes through with the whole thing of getting a divorce, which right. was not an easy thing to do and also did not make a woman look good at that time. Sure. You know, when men could get off pretty well with that. Women couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so she's cleaned up her side of the road as far as she sees it. And she's waiting for him to make a commitment. And it doesn't doesn't work out. So I am now assigning you your dramatic chance to read the letter that she wrote to Belton on December 27th. Oh, man. All right. Here we go. Dear Belton, it has not been easy ever to keep my faith in you. We both should have been honorable. No, stop, stop, stop. I need you to be, I want you to start again. You're you're almost there. <laughs> I'm not sure what your motivation is. You sound nice. I want you to sound a little more angry. Come on, Dr. Shiloh. I know you can do it. Uh, a little more angry. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hang on. Let me let me channel 
I can only do this because we're both remote. You would kick the shit out of me under the table. Oh, your shins would be all bruised right now. Trust me. (laughs) All right. Dear Belton, it has not been easy ever to keep my faith in you. We both should have been honorable and big enough to apply square after I was married. Mr. O has done more for me than anyone else ever would. Have you ever unselfishly tried to make any girl happy? Hmm? When you ask me to marry you, to grow old with you in the little white bungalow, your people should have known as long as you cannot move without them. Love is love the world over, and it will go through hell to be near the one it loves. But as usual, I was to do it all. Was I not even entitled to the truth whatsoever? Whoever? I don't know. (laughs) My God, Belton, argue after all what the majority believe you to be. God bless you always. If you are not here by January 15th, that I will go back to Mr. O. This is my final, my dear Belton. Madeline. I'm impressed. I, I I really think the next chapter of your career. Yeah, be, yes, I do. I'm going really to quit should this forensic psychology stuff <laughs> for the birds. You, let's get you a show on the CW. <laughs> oh, um, okay, but of course, Belton didn't show up in Chicago <gasps> by the 15th of January. She didn't research, but but she didn't go back to Mr. Obashane's bed either. So their divorce mm. was finalized on February 11th, 1920. By this time, she was all about. Those letters. Wrote him in December, give me all my letters. You have to give me all my letters. Um, she's writing back and forth, demanding that he give us all this evidence back or this, you know, their correspondence. While she's still in Evanston, she falls in with Arthur Birch from her past, who is spending a bunch of time with her, buying her groceries, taking her for rides in his mother's electric car, which was a thing. Ooh. People forget that there were electric cars. It was a Tesla. Um, yeah, and paying for some of the medical bills arose. And she was still insistent to El- uh, Belton about getting her letters back. She moves back to L.A. Guess where she moved to? Three mm. blocks from Belton's house. Like, oh, God. Poor clearly, Belton. Get out now. I know. Now it's getting scary, right? So they agreed to meet on a street corner to make this exchange of all these letters. And, of course, within days, they were back in relationship and making plans to marry. Madeline starts making some really bizarre traveling at this point. She had to break the news of this impending marriage to her ex-husband in person. What I don't know what that's about. So she's booking tickets on a train to Chicago, but instead of following through that commitment to meet Belton in San Francisco, which was going to be part of the trip, which would have been like north to San Francisco and then over to Chicago, mm-hmm. she consoled herself with a long trip down the western seaboard from Canada. Like, so she was supposed to do all these things and then suddenly just bizarrely changes her plans. So mm-hmm. she was back up in Canada. She's going down to San Francisco. And then in some of her letters that were later found, she was planning on going to Honolulu. Do they so, ever explain why she did that? No, it's it's weird because she bought multiple tickets. So I think that someone was supposed to kill Kennedy during that time and she was planning these trips to be to be her alibi. That would make sense. And it just kept getting delayed, delayed. So like, oh, okay, Canada, I'll go to Hawaii and I'll be as far away as possible. Well, clearly something's up because they're still having communications when she does get back to LA. 
And they're having a friend of theirs that's a beauty uh, salon owner that is running notes between her and Belton to try and keep them from getting um, taken by his mom. And later in the trial, Mrs. Kennedy stated dramatically in court that the the employee shoved her in a chair and screamed at her, your boy is going to die, your boy is going to die, and you are going to cry, which just makes... Weird. I mean, that just seems so over-the-top dramatic for the time, even. I mean, well, it sounds like a coach, right? It it does, and it could have been very dramatic testimony during this trial at the time. Who knows? Right. So the next couple of months with these trips and and the interactions between Belton and uh, Madeline were just back and forth. More of the same. Lather, rinse, repeat. Same old relationship stuff. And then it seems like there was a line drawn in the sand. Or maybe that had already happened and she had been planning this and that was what her trip's about. We'll never know. But what we do know is that Madeline sends a telegram to Arthur and it states, have sent two letters, received by Thursday, wait for them. Then if possible, wish you could leave for just here two weeks. If there's any chance for this, wire me. Have been prostrated last few days. I need you and your friend I had last summer signed goddess that was her his nickname for her is goddess oh lord right a little this bit telling poor guy. <laughs> so what we found out later is the friend was the nickname for arthur's shotgun Ooh, that's good so literally more than anybody else in this terrible tableau birch was wrapped around madeline's finger she he was easily easily manipulated by her he left his wife and child and headed west and he went to the russell hotel right across the street from Kennedy's office and waited for instructions from Madeline. He was going through the hotel, actually. He was given, like, room, I think it was 20, goes into the room with the hotel manager, and he says, um, no, I need the one room over after he looked out the window. So he paid extra to have the person in the next room over moved. Why do you think he had that uh, move of rooms? To have surveillance on Kennedy when he's coming it, and going. It was directly opposite the insurance building where Mr. Kennedy and his dad had offices. Like, literally, he could look into their office windows. Mm -hmm. And so later during the trial, the manager was interviewed, and he said that Birch also said, like, uh, my cousin is going to be coming to visit. And at that time, clearly, you weren't allowed to have co-ed visitors. But because it was a cousin, he, he made an agreement with him. Your cousin can come in, but only if you don't close the door of your room. So that was agreed upon. But then like an overnight departure, he checked out of the hotel. And when they went in to clean up, they found a bunch of newspapers that were all about Kennedy's death. Okay. So this is after the crime so has this been committed. Is yeah, so he had this place while he was staying in town, committed the murder, knows that she's going to need a place to come to. Well, if she's staying at the Alexandria, I don't know where the Russell Hotel is, but, you know, she could have come right over too. Right. So what is it that also, is he surveilling just Kennedy or was there a plan to take out Kennedy's dad as being part of it as well? I don't well, know. Like, could you fire across the street and take somebody out with a shotgun? I mean, no. it seems like that'd be pretty sloppy, right? Yeah, no. I, I think he probably had the hotel room before the murder. So maybe he's seeing when he's leaving for work or from the, uh, the office, heading back home. Right. Keeps the hotel room after they want to go there and look at all the newspaper articles and... 
Right. He gets picked up because mm-hmm. the hotel owner goes, knows something's up and knows of that, that killing because it was huge at the time. Police pick him up. He's put on trial. He's charged. And he says later in a statement, I am in jail and under indictment for this murder because I threw part of a torn telegraph blank in a waste paper basket in my room at the Russell Hotel. They charged that this telegram was from Madeline Obeshane telling me to come to Los Angeles from Illinois. That is absurd. It was a message from my business partner. I will prove it. Mm, he wasn't able to prove it at all. <laughs> sounds sounds good, all. but... Yeah, good, good excuse, but it didn't work. So by this time, Madeline is being charged. Birch is in custody. She lawyers up and she shuts down. She's not talking anymore. She's not being cooperative and and kind the way she was framed earlier. And the grand jury agreed and both indicted both Madeline and Birch for the murder of Belton Kennedy. Justice moved pretty much more quickly in the 20s than it does in current day. So on November 21st, 1921, Birch stood trial. The prosecutor's explanation to the jury was that Madeline was a scorned woman who reached out to her former boyfriend who was willing to do anything to gain her approval. He would do anything for her. And she enticed him into murdering her ex-fiance for never following through on his promises. And they were able to bring up a lot of evidence that showed that there had been a lot of planning about this, that there are people on the witness stand that were showing, that were on the train with him from Chicago that described him carrying a shotgun case and even had the gun out of the case while he was on the train. Cause that's apparently what you do is just pull out a gun on a train. That's, I well, guess you're going to clean it over the clackety clack clack of the trails. It right? was a hundred years ago. It was definitely, definitely a different time. They also found out that he had rented a car and the mileage on the round trip absolutely was exact going up to Beverly Glen. I mean, it was literally to the 10th of a mile. They were able to, prove that he had driven at least that distance. That's pretty good detective work right there, looking at the mileage. Right. There were also, oh, and here's some other, they interviewed uh, Elizabeth and Louis Basanti, who was an elder an elder couple that lived in Beverly Glen, and they noticed that it was the same guy and the same make of car of someone that was driving back and forth in front of Kennedy's cabin. The medic in the county jail where they were holding Birch had removed a tiny thorn from Birch's knee, and they were found uh, to be exactly along the lines of the foliage that were in the area. So we're seeing some more good police work and collecting evidence, right? When Birch took the stand in his own defense, he finally did give up on saying that he had come to LA for business. This time, he was upfront with the court, and he said that he came to visit his quote-unquote platonic friend, Madeline Obedjane. And the friend that she referred to was not the shotgun, but it was the nurse that had cared for her when she was ill with the flu. So which makes no sense at all. Like, oh, and bring your nurse. Bring the nurse to take care of me. Now, that being said, it was very expensive to send telegrams. Still is expensive to send telegrams. I don't know anybody that would send telegrams now with our other methods of communication, but you paid by the letter and the space. So there was always sort of this effort to really condense your messages because it was so expensive. So it took a jury three days of deliberation to announce that they were deadlocked 11 at one to conviction. So they declared mistrial. 
And then the prosecutors are like, we don't care. We're going to retry it. So this time when they came back, they turned their attention on Madeline and it was a much tougher case. They were able to bring a lot of other people into it. They found another witness named Paul Romans. He was an inmate at the jail who had met uh, Madeline there when I guess the jails were co-ed at the time. Basically, he fell completely under her spell and was revealing that there was a side to Madeline that nobody knew that she was manipulative, beautiful and transporting and hypnotic, but she knew what she was doing and she knew how to get her needs met. And one of the lines just sounds like something from a from an old movie when they were reading the love letters at trial that Madeline and he were sending back and forth to each other while in jail. Another reason not to write letters. But his quote is, what you need is a lot of attention and I'm the guy to give it to you. <laughs> so poetic and romantic, right? It's straight to the point. I mean, I'm the, I'm the guy to give it to you. He calls it like he sees it. So Madeline's trial lasted 30 days, but it only took the jury two days to determine that it was deadlocked as well, just like the first one. This time, though, it was nine to three, four conviction. So this went on for another two years, and County of Los Angeles kept trying without success to convict both Birch and Madeline. But they had a total of five deadlocked juries. Whoa. And after that, the state just was like, forget it. Forget it. Madeline was released. She disappeared from newspapers until several years later in 1925 when she reported to the Oakland Tribune that she was going to give a recital at the county jail. Oh, a recital. I, a one-woman show. Huh. I Monologue operatic, interpretive dance. I'm not sure. Uh, Ralph Omenshane finally got his shit together, got married again, never saw her again after the trial, and he died at the age of 49 in 1939. Birch, who was divorced twice after the trial, left Madeline $1,500 in his will, all he had, and stating that she was his lifelong friend. She wow. never remarried. Birch abandoned his family. Yep. Clearly killed someone. Yep. For love. Amazingly got off of these horrible crimes. And he was still obsessed with her. You know, well, just leaving a trial of wreckage. It is. And I think, you know, five mistrial or five deadlock trials. One, incredibly expensive. So I know how after five, the DA is probably like, well, like we can't drag anyone else into this courtroom right. as a, a witness. They're already reaching as far as I'm concerned with this inmate who barely knows her and is going to testify to her character. I mean, that's such a stretch. But I'm guessing that it was the way in which a lot of this was perceived in the media that was getting to jurors as far as them not knowing what to think. And especially if, you know, if this is going on for years and you're reading about this in the paper and then you get picked to be a juror, it's not like you don't know anything about the case if you live in Los Angeles. Right. So it, it's it's the most, it's the, the biggest thing happening. Everybody's yeah. going to know about it. Yeah, exactly. On November 19th of 2018, True Crime Bullshit premiered with the story of Israel Keyes. 
Over two seasons and 29 hours, we dug deep into Key's travels, interviews, confessions, transactions, kill kits, bank robberies, personal life, and known and potential murder victims. And with more than 10 million downloads, new tips, new leads, new sightings, and new sources came in. And the investigation never stopped. Two years later, Season 4 of True Crime Bullshit returns to its roots and finds we'd barely even cracked the surface in the story of Israel Keys. True Crime Bullshit and Israel Keys come barging back into your ears on November 12th, everywhere you listen to podcasts. bit about just this sort of glamorization, especially about female offenders back then in the media. Again, think about this time period. So due to prohibition, there was really a rise in lawlessness altogether, also increased availability of firearms for everybody in society. And couple that with the fact that women are starting to go out to speakeasies and clubs either alone or together with other women, when previously they would have had to have chaperones. I mean, that was appropriate right. to have male chaperones to go out at well, night. Well, that's that's a big deal. I mean, we talk about the 60s being the sexual revolution, but in, the, in many ways, this was sort of the apex of the beginning of the suffragette movement. Right. So there's a lot of women exploring their own autonomy. We're going to talk in our next episode about the whole flapper phenomenon and how that is a representation of what you're talking about. Something else about that bathtub gin that they were producing, like there was <laughs> likely a lot of brain damage from some of the, the crap that was being distributed in back alleys yeah, and speakeasies, right? It's a really interesting point. I mean, you, the substance that people are consuming that's unregulated at this point. Um, Completely. But... During this time, female perpetrated violent crime went up. There's all these factors going on. So when we kind of harken back to the parallels of the story for the musical Chicago, murderous row isn't really a made-up thing. There were women being prosecuted or being tried for murdering their husbands to where murderous row was actually a thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about Chicago? Do we have to like mention Just, the show? I mean, if, you want to... if anybody has seen, I mean, obviously the music, the stage musical Chicago is sort of one of the the bright shining stars in the at the pantheon of of musical history. It was a cutting edge musical that is very satirical. It was done in the seventies, then it was done into a great movie in the two thousands. But it is about this very thing about murderesses and that sort of particular intersection that was inhabited by women about being second-class citizens, no matter how powerful or rich you were. And yet there was a double standard because it was, even if you committed a heinous crime, you don't really think of women as being capable of being dangerous. So that means they were always painted as being the victims. And if you get a chance, if you haven't seen Chicago It's really well done. I thought I was going to hate the movie years ago, and it's really, really good. Really Really, fantastic. Really is. I've seen. See that if you ever get this chance to see the stage version, see the stage version too because it's great. I saw the stage version with 
oh my gosh, why am I blanking? Why was I even going to say it if I... <laughs> Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze played Billy Flynn. Oh, wow. It was, it was great. great. It was really good. Yeah. There's a book. It's called The Girls of Murder City, Fame, Lust, and the Beautiful Killers Who Inspired Chicago. It's written by Douglas Perry, who's a, a journalist. This is going to be on my list of true crime books to go through, but there's there's some things I pulled from it before I get to it in full. He was talking about, you know, there's all these women on Murder's Row, and that's hearkening back more to Chicago. He was asked, you know, why were most of these women acquitted? You know, you have the you have an entire row of these women with this particular crime. How are they all getting off? And he points out, you know, juries back then were still all male. So you have the average juryman with the perspective of this this Victorian feminine ideal perspective that women are inherently morally superior to men and they're not capable of premeditated violence. Like it, it wasn't even part of somebody's thought pattern or perspective that that could happen. Well, we use that term mental gymnastics so much in this podcast. We just, we use that all the time. And isn't that a perfect representation of it? It sort of goes back to, uh, you know, certainly in women's studies where women are relegated to certain roles. You're either the the maiden, the mother, or the crone in, in a sort of a, a triune view. And then in a dyad view, it's either you're the Madonna or you're the whore. Right. So in this way, it's like, you are so objectified and relegated to a substation of where men inhabit in the world that you're not capable of these things. To the point where you men are like, thing. violence is our thing. Like, yeah. you're not capable of that. So you have that going on. And then this really kind of cool phenomenon where this is where women were also getting jobs as reporters. And so they would hire female reporters to cover these crimes from a woman, to be able to write from a woman's perspective. And they started getting the name Sob Sisters because the women, the, the female reporters would almost elevate the women in the writings and in the reporting and portray them as a victim, like you said. So when a woman shot her husband or a boyfriend, the Sob Sister would play up the tragedy of what happened to the woman not the actual victim, the male victim. So, you know, it had to be for a good reason that she did it. Like she was abused or she was drunk and a man is actually, he needs to be responsible for how intoxicated his woman is. So, you know, it's kind of on him. So that's how these stories were spun and written by these sob sisters. There's a great, there's a great line in the musical Chicago where all the women on murderers, uh, on um, murderess's row, Although they call it something different. What do they call it? I can't remember what they call it in the musical. But one of the excuses is, he ran into my knife. Oh, he yeah. ran into my knife nine times. Right, right. <laughs> Another one was, you know, these were happening in big cities. So that it, the, it, it was kind of the modern city's fault. I mean, the clamor and bustle of pollution just made her insane. <laughs> so I don't know. I, it's a lot of variables coming together. It's such an interesting time and era of society and what's happening, especially just the snapshot that we've painted here in Los Angeles that I think led to these five trials of what seems like a pretty clear-cut case. It does. I mean, a clear-cut case 
where they were both they both were released as a result of hung juries. I mean, that's just crazy. So here we are in our last bit of discussion about this. Let's talk about a hundred years out diagnostic stuff from a from a psych <laughs> right. perspective, which I know is a big stretch, but given all the context of sort of the emergence and the idea of women ha- women having freedoms that they had not had before within the scope of prohibition, which is limited freedoms within the context of women being viewed as unable to commit crimes or be responsible for crimes. We've got like a really challenging mix yeah. through which to, or a challenging lens through which to view this. But I immediately thought, like, was she the original affluenza teen? I mean, That's- was she rich, entitled, and triggered when she didn't get her way? Yeah. I mean, she she did not need money. She inherited money from her father. Even when she wasn't with Open Change, she just continued to get money from him and then support in other ways from Archer. So I I don't know if we actually know that she was a narcissist. I mean, what we know about narcissistic personality disorder as we continue, well, actually the whole spectrum of personality disorders is that we know more and more that it's way more complex diagnostically than we've ever known. We know that it could be part and parcel of nature and nurture in various combinations. It could be a brain structure. It could be a chemical influence with a mood disorder, or it could be the result of complex trauma that they experience. I was going to say, I would love to know more about her developmental periods and her relationships with her parents and how that factors in to this need and expectation and entitlement, not just of the money, but of attention from men and how she kind of mastered that. And then when the guy didn't fall for it, Right. That's what was hypnotic to her her or entrancing to her is that, oh, here's one that I can't easily manipulate. Right. So is her radar messed up? I mean, or is is she is she more entranced by the hunt and then she discards people when she doesn't need them? We don't know. But there were some disordered behaviors on both her part and on the part of uh, Belton Kennedy's. They talk about the possibility that the reason Belton might have been back and forth was that he might have been gay. There's nothing to back that up. I just read about it in a couple of articles because they were saying certainly in the 20s, if you were living in a very, very big city with a lot of money, it was easy to hide your sexuality and there Mm -hmm. was a way to work around it. However, sort of in the nascent blooming of the population of Los Angeles, it probably would not have been accepted even as a hidden thing at all by his family. So, but we yeah, don't you, know that. You hide it by going off to your rustic cabin with your buddies. Yeah, good point. Good point. Could be. And then Madeline, maybe it was like a match made in heaven in that way, but there was something going on with Belton and his mom. It sounds like that there was some real enmeshment or mother knew what was going on and it wasn't going to work or mother had some real insight into what Madeline was really about on a fundamental level. You know, throughout the rest of her life, Madeline would claim that she was truly in love with Kennedy. Like you're saying, what is more likely is that he was what she couldn't catch. Yep. He was really the first guy to not just completely fawn over her and give her everything she wanted. And this is what's interesting, because does that then fill what we would consider a narcissistic injury that triggers her? The narcissistic primitive defense is 
not only I want what I want and I want it right now, which is sort of the, the primal drive of the id, but it's also I deserve it. You can't take it from me. You are my arm. You are my narcissistic extension. Why are you not acting in the way that is necessary for me to feel validated as a human? I know that's sort of a complex thing to wrap your mind around, but that is one of the drives that happens in right. narcissism. It, if, if you're not going to act the way that I want you to act, then I'm just going to chop you off and go about my life. Right. Because narcissistic injuries don't feel like hurt feelings. They feel like the narcissist intrinsic integral self is being attacked and destroyed. And a, a person who is a narcissist or has these narcissistic leanings needs this constant ongoing reassurance that they hold a special place in everyone's life because everyone is them. I'm important to me, so I need to be important to you. Or why am I not important to you if I'm important to me? That is one of the drives. And they can spin out of control and really go on the offensive and attack others very stridently when they feel unappreciated. So we also use a term called narcissistic rage, and it talks about the narcissist's need for total control within their environment, including what we would call a need for revenge for undoing what they feel has been done to them, uh, repairing the hurt, but repairing the hurt, righting the wrong, is made and justified by any reason, including violence. And we see that, and there are clearly studies on male narcissists who act out in violence, and this literally hits every bullet point of that diagnostically. And so it could also involve like the ability or the drive to protect themselves or preserve themselves with rage. And whether it's hot rage or cool rage is going to serve a purpose of restoring what they feel is a sense of balance in their life that had been threatened by what has been taken away from them or what they feel has been taken away from them, which is that validation. And it's not balanced so, at all, you know, not, no, not returning no. somebody's affections or committing to them does not equal the revenge of killing them. But no. to them, it feels like, oh, okay, everything's back to homeostasis again. It's balanced. Absolutely. Do we know if she was a narcissist? We know she was a woman scorned. We don't know if she was a narcissist. And certainly, as you just gave a great visualization of or a great uh, verbal description is the result doesn't equal the wound. Yeah. Right? Right. You know, I'm really surprised that she didn't flip on Arthur and say he was jealous and he came all the way out here to LA and murdered Kennedy. I'm really surprised. Actually. Really? I, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, actually, well, God, now I want to talk to my analyst friends because to me, if she has lopped off that narcissistic extension of Belton Kennedy, Obenshane has like, oh, I thought I was going to represent you. This is not working well. Peace out. I'm heading back to Chicago. Here's some uh -huh. money for your trial. Birch is the only one left. Oh, right. So can you destroy the only source of validation that exists for you? I mean, Roman, this other guy, the sort of the, the inmate guy was giving it to her, but he didn't have mm -hmm. any money. Right, right. Well, that's a great point. And that could be while they held steadfast through five trials. I mean, he didn't flip on her and she nope. didn't flip on him. So yeah, that does make sense too. Interesting. Well, I think I'm going to save, I, I did a little bit about forensics and what it was like then. I think I'm going to save that for the next episode because it'll fit there too. Oh, and the next one's much more bloody. So that's good. 
Cool. Perfect. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is such a great story. This was fun. I think it fits in here so nicely of, of this little series here. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Thank you. This was a great story. We've got scads more from this period that all have different motivations. I mean, it all boils down to about three drives, but there's a lot that we can opine on from a psych perspective that I think is really fascinating. And I think it's also really important to remember what we were saying is that, sure, there are drives we have, but our drives are modulated and regulated by the environment and the culture that we're currently living in. And that is certainly has to have an aspect in what we talked about today. Absolutely. All right, everyone. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.